Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Larry King, the legendary talk show host, will be on his way in a little bit, but this gives me a chance to talk a little bit about the Dodgers-Cardinals rivalry, and it's obviously uh, coming up in my brain because the Dodgers and the Cardinals start game one of the 2013 NLCS tonight. And they have a long, long history of fighting for pennants. And uh, what's interesting is that I posted looking for uh, uh, some memories about uh, uh, some fans out there and uh, their, their favorite Dodgers-Cardinals memories and some of their worst memories of the Dodgers and Cardinals. And I got back some responses about how they didn't realize, people didn't realize that the Dodgers and the Cardinals had a history or at least that they had a rivalry going on. They they always assumed it was just the Giants. But what people have to understand is that back in the day, when there used to be only eight teams in each league, they each used to play each other 22 times. And that was 11 times on the road and 11 times at home. And so really every team you had a, a history with, uh, that that was that, and nowadays, obviously, in terms of the divisions, th- those are are emphasized, and you have about 18 to 19 games played in your division, and so the Dodgers and the Cardinals, uh, their rivalry certainly took a hit when it comes uh, to expansion, uh, and we got to go all the way back to 1941. That was really the, uh, you know, they had they'd obviously played each other a lot, but the, the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, is when the Dodgers made it back to the World Series, uh, won the pennant for the first time since 1920. It was really the the only time in, in close to 20 years that they that they had um, they had competed. 24 and 25, they uh, they made a little bit of a run, but they didn't make it into the the postseason or excuse me the World Series. Uh, but in 1941. They had a battle, a, a ridiculous battle with St. Louis for the pennant. And if we look at the schedule, we'll see in 1941 that just the entire time you see up one, down two, up up three. And it was generally speaking the, the Cardinals that they were tied with. Uh, and on August 30th, they were tied for three days straight. They played the, uh, the Giants in a four-game series. And uh, they lost twice in the middle of those on a doubleheader on Saturday, August 3rd, it's the Giants, and they stayed tied. The Cardinals, uh, obviously, losing as well. And then they won that last day, but the Cardinals won as well. And they were able to go, they, they, they were able to go up two on to, uh, Saturday, September 6th, also playing the Giants with a 4-1 win over their uptown rivals. And from there on out, uh, the closest that the Cardinals got um, was really they they ha- uh, the Dodgers ha- uh, hung on for about a few weeks only up one and one and a half so it was just Dodger fans who had been waiting so long for these pennants uh, you know were on the edge of their seats this is one of the things that are amazing about the baseball season is that it's every day it's grueling and and you you don't get a, a week to anticipate everything you get those little moments. But it's it's still you're always kind of what what's St. Louis doing? What's what are the the Braves doing? What 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 are the what what are the the Phillies doing? The Phillies didn't really come into play until 1950 with the Wiz Kid. But th- this is one of the things that's just absolutely amazing about baseball. And 
you know, they were up one and a half with four games to play. And then St. Louis lost on uh, Thursday, September 25th, while they won over the Boston Bees at the time, not the Braves, actually. And they were able to win the pennant by two and a half games. And what's interesting about 1941, and uh, we've had Mark Langell has told this story, but they were coming back, uh, they, they were taking the train, and they came across Harlem, and Leo DeRocher knew that their fans were waiting, and they didn't want any of the players to get off before Grand Central because he wanted the players, he, they were like, they've waited 20-something years, we want them to, uh, Leo wanted them to, to, all the players to be there to be greeted by hordes of fans that were at Grand Central. And unbeknownst to him, Larry McPhail was at the Harlem stop, which is 125th Street. And he tells the conductor, just just don't stop, go, go past it, uh, whiz past, I don't want anybody getting off. And Larry, who was there, Larry McPhail, the, the uh, vice president at the time of the the Dodgers, who had gotten them out of, of second division and to the pennant uh, when coming aboard in 1938. He had no idea that Leo told that, and he assumed, you know, he was a little bit in the egomaniac, as many, many characters are out there. But he assumed that Leo didn't want him to have his glory. He was waiting to get on the train to go to Grand Central. And uh, Grand Central greeted them with, with uh, heroes welcome, and, it, you know, it, it, was, it was amazing. But Larry McPhail was fuming, and he goes to Leo, you don't want my glory, you're fired. And we're talking about a manager who just got his, his team into the World Series. And, and so it's, it's, it's outlandish. You just imagine that happening where either Brian Cashman or even Sandy Alderson, let's, let's, uh, let's say the Mets, get back to the promised land. Something, something so minute uh, happens, and he fires the manager. But you have to also understand that Larry McPhail had fired Leo a bunch of times. In fact, even before uh, 1939, when Leo had been hired, even before the season had started, Larry fired Leo DeRocher. But just like every single uh, time, in 1941, uh, he, he gets up the next morning, and Larry's like, I want to talk about matchups with the Yankees. And Leo's like, but you fired me. He's like, oh, let's let bygones be the bygones. And uh, unfortunately, when it, uh, when it came to the World Series, the famous Mickey Owen losing the curveball and Tommy Hendrick running, uh, who struck out, running to first base, and, and this is in game four of the, the World Series. The, the Dodgers were up four to three. They had it won, and they ended up losing seven to four and uh, then lost the World Series the next day. But moving on to 1942, What's really uh, remarkable about 1942 is that the Dodgers were generally up for the entire year. You see, uh, as you look through on baseball reference and look at the, the schedule, the, the Dodgers were still, were still in first place up by one game on September 11th. And generally speaking, they were, I mean, we're talking, let's see, going all the way back to August 4th, they were up 10 games in the standings, and it just kept creeping down. And, and I think about that time, Larry went into the clubhouse and said, you know, these guys are up 10 games. And it was like, yeah, but you'll end up blowing it. Now, you know, I'm not sure, you know, it's only speculation to say that that might have affected their, the, the play down the stretch. 
but they you know they kept losing losing games uh, in the standings. Uh, they weren't generally losing too many times. You see, uh, you know, they'd win five games but then lose three. Uh, and you don't see too many L's, but St. Louis played out of their minds, and they tied the Dodgers on Saturday, September 12th. And from then on out, you know, one game, one game, two games, three, two and a half, two and a half, and they finished the season with 104 wins, but St. Louis had 106 wins, and they moved on to the, the uh, World Series. And in 1946, uh, the Dodgers and the Cardinals actually played the first ever tiebreaker playoff series, and which was supposed to be a three-game series. But what ended up happening was it was ended up being a two-game series because St. Louis won both games. And they generally owned the, these two games. Uh, um, they, they scored one in the first game in the uh, first inning off, let's see, it was Ralph Ranka. Ralph Ranka was pitching that game in 1946, and they, they, uh, the Dodgers tied them in the third game, uh, but St. Louis came back with two, and uh, they ended up winning the game 4-2. to two. And then in the, well, in the second game, they just blew them out by 8-4. to four. Uh, Dodgers did score three in the ninth, so it was generally 8-1 to one for the majority of the game, and this is uh, October 3rd, 1946, and that would become a famous date in Dodger and Giants the uh, Dodger and Giant rivalry uh, with the shot heard around the world happening on October 3rd, 1951. But on this day, the St. Louis uh, ended up winning 8-4. to four. Unfortunately, the, uh, the Dodgers lost the pennant. But the, beauty, the beautiful thing about that at the time was, number one, they had made it in 1941, so they hadn't really uh, uh, had to wait. The Dodger fans hadn't had to wait too long and you also had Jackie Robinson down in Montreal, well, up in Montreal technically, but down on the farm in Montreal, having an MVP season, winning the Little World Series, which it was called at the time, for the Montreal Royals. And everybody knew they were just waiting for, for him to come up. Dodger fans knew they would be right back in it, and obviously they were in 1947. They made, they made the World Series against the Yankees in 1947. But I'll tell you, I, I was rooting for the Pirates against the Cardinals this time around. Uh, you know, just it, it's obviously it's a feel-good story. I'm generally rooting for the underdog, but also I'm a Mets fan. And the Cardinals, I, I just want them to, to stop winning is, is the best way I can tell you. Uh, it's, you know, they're, they're very, I respect them beyond belief. But, you know, going into, if you guys were watching the game uh, in, in game five, they were St. Louis was only up three to one in the the ninth inning, and uh, I'm sorry, the eighth inning. And I was listening to to the game. I put on the St. Louis radio actually, um, and they ended up hitting a two run home run in the bottom of the eighth to really just put the game away. And I just shut it off. You could hear everybody going going crazy. And one thing they say about St. Louis and the town is how great of a baseball town it is that. There's this great balance of, of uh, baseball passion, but also uh, uh, that they're you know they're nice to you at the same time. You don't really get uh, uh, any any uh, uh, venom like you do in some of the other baseball towns, and especially New York. You know, you think about all the history of, of the Brooklyn fans and and the uh, the Giants fans, and and 
I'll sure I'll mention I'll mention you Yankee fans out there, uh, but especially because of the uh, the famous cheers that sometimes go on at Yankee Stadium with uh, A S S H O L E, if you will. Uh, but when it comes to when it comes to the um, you know how it goes in New York, you, you think about John Rocker and, and getting batteries thrown at him, and and you just you know, and then you think about St. Louis, and I, that's just that's not something that that would ever happen. And it, it, it's I, I'm happy to give them the credit that they deserve, but at the same time, you know, you you just you do want your teams to be like the St. Louis franchise because other than the Yankees, nobody else in the history of baseball has ever gotten into double digits when it comes to World Series wins. And the St. Louis Cardinals have 11 World Series wins over the course of Major League Baseball history. The Yankees obviously have 27 world championships. And uh, until recently, the Yankees were the only ones in double digits because the St. Louis Cardinals have obviously won the World Series twice in the last 15 years. And so when it came to the Pirates series, especially, uh, you know, uh, being a Mets fan, Marlon Bird had gotten traded there. Uh, just the fact that they, they haven't been there in 21 years, you want to see them continue to have that Cinderella story type, story type season. And unfortunately, St. Louis does what they, they continue to do. But this sets up Dodgers and Cardinals, which is going to be a very interesting uh, series. They're very, very well matched. And uh, it, it should be should be fantastic. Uh, you know, the, the Dodgers didn't look like uh, during the season at the beginning that they were going to be all that good. You know, they had spent all this money, and unfortunately, uh, it wasn't coming around. But then they went on a tear that is historically one of the greatest tears in, in the history of, of baseball. Uh, I believe, you know, I, I I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but but they they certainly played two-to-one or three-to-one ratio baseball for the remainder of the season. And right now, we're seeing that they're they're just, you know, uh, on fire. And it's obviously a very, very interesting matchup coming up when it comes to uh, the Braves. I didn't think they were going to be all that good when it came, you know, for the playoffs, especially with their strikeout numbers. And it's something that Larry and I will talk about because the last time Larry was on, uh, we both mentioned that the Braves were just not made to make a deep run, and it it, it proved true. Uh, for, for all you Dodger fans out there, which I'm sure there are many, obviously, uh, Juan Uribe, that, that was fantastic. And I have to say, around the country, Dodger fans get this bad rap for being, you know, uh, laid back, uh, California type, uh, you know, uh, come in the second, leave in the seventh. And and I, I just don't I just don't see that as much I, you know uh, maybe I'm, I'm not up completely on my Dodger baseball when it comes to Los Angeles Dodgers but when you see it the uh, the, the the fans when Juan Uribe hit that that uh, that home run in the bottom of the eighth inning in Game Four against the Braves uh, you, you know you guys just were were outstanding I mean you just saw I I hadn't. I don't want to see, I say I hadn't seen fans like that in a while, but the passion was clearly there. And talking to a lot of Dodger fans, um, you still, you know, the ones in the know certainly know not only their Dodger history, but know their Dodger baseball. And it's, um, it, it's, it's just something that's, that's remarkable. Uh, we're hoping to have Larry King on very, very soon. He was taping out in Los Angeles right now, and he's a busy man. 
obviously. So, you know, hopefully he'll be able to call in a very short amount of time. Um, but when it comes to this matchup, uh, tonight you have, I'm, I'm guessing Clayton Kershaw is going tonight. Actually, no. Game one is going to be Granky versus Kelly. And uh, really, I, I have to take I have to take Granky in this regard, although he doesn't have that much playoff experience. But at, at the same time, that that really shouldn't matter right now. Let's see. I mean, right now, uh, you know, the Dodgers are the talk of the town, and um, it's uh, it's fantastic. But anyway, I you know, we can talk all we want about. Uh, modern day baseball and and it's certainly the, the on everybody's mind right now and when Larry gets here we'll certainly get on to some playoff baseball but I want to go back to uh to some of the olden old, the uh, the olden days and uh baseball you know right now with my research I'm stuck in 1937 to 1938 1939 for that matter as well uh you know I've just written the second draft of the of the pilot and that I clocked in that at about like 71 pages, and it, you know it's nowhere near finished. You know when it comes to these kinds of processes, it's it's something that that could go on for five to ten years, and especially because of my lack of experience when it comes to to having my name out there with in terms of screenwriting. I'm currently going to school at the new school for screenwriting, and so right now it's all about the education, but it's also about getting feedback to see where I can I can improve on all my writing. And right now with the script, I've, I've gotten a lot of historical facts in there. I've expanded uh, originally with the first draft. It's something that they say, and I'm learning now, that you really shouldn't show anybody, too many people, the first draft, only the people that, that you know uh, are close to you. And with the first draft, there's a lot of baseball uh, uh, I, I had a lot of over-explanations with, with, with baseball play. Uh, there was a father-son element in there, and I certainly want to, you know, that's the father-son aspect of baseball is, is clearly a, a, a big relationship with, with baseball and, and the way fathers and sons bond. I know that I, I, I've heard Bob Costas on Ken Burns Baseball talking about how when, when, it, comes to, when it comes to that, um, that was the closest he's ever really felt to his father was going to Yankee Stadium, seeing Mickey Mantle play. Uh, and I'd love to have Bob Costas on here and talk about some of those those days and some of the uh, growing up in in, uh, in Queens. But, you know, I decided that, that we can get that kind of element somewhere else. Uh, but, but in you know, as people are ex- uh, exploring my script, the kind of feedback they're getting, uh, they're giving me is, that I, you know, I open with this this panning over Brooklyn, and then these kids waiting for the home runs outside the 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 wall on right field near Bedford and Sullivan, which was uh, on right on the other side of the Bedford Avenue wall where a lot of home runs would go, and uh, you know that's really the heart and soul of Brooklyn, and you know I I generally have. Um, well, somebody's. It looks like he's calling me on this phone. I'm going to try to merge the call on my phone. Give me one second.
Well, uh, Larry will be on very, very soon, uh, in about five minutes. Um, with, with this system, I, I, I have to say, in terms of Blog Talk Radio, I've got to figure out a, a better way to get these queued up, um, uh, which I'm hoping that I, I swapped it. So we're actually going to be on there. Um, but uh, Larry King will be on in about five more minutes, and we'll get some, uh, some talk going. Um, but, uh, yeah, I forget exactly where I was, but, uh, yeah, in terms of, uh, my, the writing of the pilot, um, I'm, the feedback I'm getting is that they want to see, uh, you know, people, especially people who aren't as into the baseball history, historical aspect, you know, cause you want to expand, uh, your audience to get as many people in as possible. But at the same time, you know, I'm also trying to, to dress up baseball and, 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 uh, you know, cause it's my religion. It's, something that I, I really believe in and um, give, give me one second again they're calling again I'm sorry for the dead air uh, a little bit but they will be calling uh, very very soon and we'll get uh, a few minutes with Larry King and um, in, in terms of the screenwriting aspect of it uh, you know I, I it hasn't really been explored some of the business aspects of early on baseball and and talking about the the players and and their relationship to the owners and the relationship to the general managers and what's what's so lovely about it is, is that uh about my research is that I find all these articles I I have a subscription to the digital on uh, online New York Times and with it comes basically every article they've ever written I'm able to to go day to day in 1938 and see what they were talking about when it came to the Dodgers. And a lot of it, there were, there were all these holdouts when it came to Leo DeRocher, who was the shortstop. Uh, not only when he was manager, he actually was a player manager, but they brought him on. Uh, Burley Grimes, who was the manager in 1937 and 1938 for the Dodgers, traded four players for DeRocher, who was on St. Louis and was famous for the Gas House game. And, uh, what, what's so what, what's so interesting is that we're talking about holding out uh, for you know they were supposed to get paid and this isn't Leo but just for an example they were supposed to get paid like fifteen thousand dollars and they wanted sixteen five and you know at the time that's a lot of money for for anybody you know these, these guys that's all they were getting for the entire year and, and most of them would end up going to farm jobs with uh, some of them owned I know that Roy Campanello owned a liquor store in Harlem. Uh, you know, but this, this this was 30 or so odd years before the union was formed that we're talking about here. And and baseball players were just undervalued when it came to the fact that they were the entertainment out on the field for everybody. And, um, you know, so that is, that is something I definitely want to get involved into the, the project because it's certainly something that that has not been explored as well in the past or or at all uh you know but you uh, it's true though that I don't want to lose the heart and soul of Brooklyn which were the fans but at the same time I want to tell the story of the Brooklyn Dodgers and they're kind of, they're the protagonist here and there're going to be multiple characters I've also um when it came to the the old man owner Steve McKeever who died in 1938 basically just months after uh, Larry McPhail was brought on. Um, you know, I, I, I've introduced them as characters, and there's not so much information out there. 
about those characters, and so I can kind of uh, take some creative liberties when it comes to presenting uh, Deary, Deary Mulvey and Jim Mulvey, who was her husband. Uh, you know, Deary was Steve McKeever's daughter, and she owned 25%. Now, let, let me uh, give you a little background when it comes to the owner lineage, because eventually it gets to Walter O'Malley, and that's where, you know, that, that's, that's one of the main focuses should be how the ownership gets to Walter O'Malley, who eventually takes the Dodgers out of Brooklyn. But back when Ebbets was building the uh, the ballpark, and he was uh, – what's so beautiful about that was that he, he bought the parcels up in a very There Will Be Blood style, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, going from, from parcel to parcel and, and uh, needing to keep it very, very secret, but then only having – one parcel that was a holdout because they couldn't find the person. And what's what's so awesome is that they they went from uh, they they went to California, they went to Europe to try to find this owner of the of the land parcel, and he ended up being in New Jersey, which is is just uh, very very uh, cute to me. And that guy, obviously, seeing how how you know how many people were uh, were trying to search for him, he you know recognized something was up, even though they were keeping it under wraps. That it was the uh, that was at Charlie Evans, and that it was uh, the plans were for a ballpark. But once he realized that he he uh, asked for an outlandish sum, they were only paying like one to two hundred for a parcel. But he asked for something close to a, a, a two thousand, uh, either a thousand or two thousand. And Charlie Evans really had no choice but to pay it. And uh, the they were trying to open it in August two thousand twelve. They had the uh, the uh, groundbreaking. Uh, in March of 2012, and they were trying to get get the place built by August of 2012, but he ran out of money. That's basically it. He ran out of money at Charlie Evans, and so he had to go to these these two uh, construction guys. Uh, um, I, I wish uh, I, I don't want to. I'm, I'm not so confident exactly uh, what their role uh, in terms of money making was, but I know that they were big in the uh, the political realm of Brooklyn, and they had to buy half of the team from him, uh, Ed and Steve McKeever. Anyway, we have Larry Ting on right now. Larry, uh, you can find Larry on Aura.tv backslash Larry King now, as well as Politicking with Larry King on RT America. Check your local listings. Larry, always glad to have you. Hey, happy to be with you. Well, uh, you know, I have to give ourselves a pat on the back in terms of the Braves. Uh, you know, we were dead on about them not being uh, really a deep playoff team. No, they strike out a lot, <laughs> and uh, they had a lot of holes in the in that lineup, which the Dodgers exploited. Uh, they had some definite weaknesses. I, I like Gonzalez a lot, and there's some things about them. I, I think their first baseman is terrific. And they uh, they're just they're, they're a solid good 162 game team. They're not a great playoff team, but they got some holes to fill. They'll fill them. They're a great organization. Yeah, they've obviously been balancing it very very well over the last few years. And um, with the Dodgers and the Cardinals, that must bring back some memories. I was just talking to everybody about some of those those old pennant races. Well, the Dodgers and the Cardinals are one of baseball's great rivalry. In fact, I believe the lifetime record uh, they play against each other is almost even. I believe like 2,000 games, each one 1,000. Uh, I've lived through the Dodger-Cardinal rivalry all those years. 
Uh, I grew up with it at, in Brooklyn, Evansville. We named Musial the man. We called him mm-hmm. the man. Uh, my brother, younger brother, who was, uh, you know, like brothers always fight, he became a Cardinal fan. He's a Cardinal fan to this day. Um, he lives and dies with the Cardinals, as I do with the Dodgers. It's a great rivalry. The teams respect each other. It's not. It's an interesting rivalry. It's not a Yankee-Red Sox, which is a hate rivalry. Mm-hmm. It's not a Dodger-Giant rivalry, which is a hate rivalry. It's a rivalry of respect. The two teams have so been dominant in the National League. No team in the, in the in the 21st century has been as dominant as the Cardinals. I mean, they're an amazing team. I mean, they have, you yeah. know, they have never gone long periods of time being bad. Uh, I think they have the best overall record, better than the Yankees, in consistency. Cardinals have been consistent. The Dodgers have had inconsistent years and then bangs of years together. This, I think, they're two great teams. These are two great ball clubs going into action here. This could be a seven-game series easily. Yeah, and I'm gathering you're going tonight. Um, no, I'm not going tonight uh, because they're in St. Louis and i got to work. I'll be oh, going okay. uh, that's, next, that's, next um, week when the Dodgers are home. I'll be there. But I promised my boys at the World Series, I'm <laughs> taking them. if the Dodgers make the World Series, I'm taking them to either Boston or Detroit. I, I guess I thought that the Dodgers had a better record, but um, maybe I was wrong. Uh, but recently you went to the L.A. Sports Stadium, and uh, everybody out there should take a look at Aura.tv backslash Larry King now and watch this because it's fascinating. But tell me some of your favorite uh, favorite moments about this. Well, the, the L.A. Sports Museum is one of the great places. It's not open to the public. It's open for parties and functions and events. But next to Cooperstown, it has more memorabilia especially centered around the Dodgers than I have ever seen. They're an incredible thing. They're incredible Yankee things, too. But uh, if, you're, if you're planning a party and you're in Los Angeles, do it at the L.A. Sports Museum. Uh, it's just a wonderful trip to yesterday. Well, take his advice, folks. And I know you have to get going, but I want to throw some random names out there and see what kind of uh, memories they stir for you. Dick Whitman. Dick Whitman. Uh, yeah, well, a lot, a lot of people know Dick Whitman as Don Draper on Mad Men, but he was also a player for the Dodgers. He was an outfielder, left-handed hitter, good, solid, kind of a 270 hitter. How about Ed Roebuck? Ed Roebuck was one of my favorite pitchers. I loved his name. I like saying Ed Roebuck. The Dodgers used him in middle relief a lot. He had a lot of stuff, but he never quite reached his potential. All right. uh, Two more for you. Uh, Spider Jorgensen. Spider Jorgensen was the third baseman when Jackie Robinson was the first baseman and Eddie Stanky the second baseman and Pee Wee reached the shortstop opening day 1947 when Robinson broke into the major leagues. I was at that game. And I always liked Spider Jorgensen. I loved his name. I liked the way he played. He hit left-handed. He was a good third baseman uh, and a very good utility player. And this one's not as obscure to people and, of course, to you, Billy Cox. My all-time favorite ball player, Billy Cox, was the best third baseman I ever saw. Juan Uribe had a kind of season this year like Billy Cox had his whole career. 
He was amazing. Uh, he had a great arm. He was a slender shortstop that Dodgers got from Pittsburgh when they got Preacher O and him and traded away Dixie Walker. He he was he beat up, had a beat up old Doug a beat up old glove rather. He would hold the glove in his right hand while the pitcher was pitching. Sometimes he'd feel the ground ball and look at the ball and like read the ball before he threw the first. And my best my best memory was interviewing Casey Stengel once and then talking to Brooks Robinson. Brooks told me that and they were playing an exhibition game, the Orioles were playing the Mets and Stengel was managing. And Stengel yelled to Brooks, you are the second best third baseman I ever saw. And Robinson came over and said, well, who was the best? And Stengel said, number three, Brooklyn, better arm. Cox was the best. He was my favorite ball player, and he was a pretty good hitter. He hit, he, had, he, he batted about 280, he hit his 15 homers. He was a cog, he was a clutch player. I never saw him drop the ball. Well, Larry, I know you got to get going, so I'll let you go. Thank you very, very much, and we'll we'll queue up uh, next time as well. You got it. Any Have a good one. You want to talk baseball? I'm here. Thanks, man. Perfect. Thank you, Larry. That's our show, everybody. Have a great one. Catch us next week.